sunflowerofpeace.com. Hello to our Commonwealth Club podcast listeners and viewers. This is a quick note from us, the employees of the club. As the world watches in horror the atrocities in Ukraine, the Commonwealth Club is highlighting important organizations providing humanitarian aid to the victims of this war. Sunflower of Peace is an organization working to support the people of Ukraine affected by the Russian military invasion. In collaboration with a global network of organizations, Sunflower of Peace procures, ships, and distributes vital medical supplies to Ukrainian health workers. It provides first aid backpacks, medicines, and essential medical supplies necessary for the very survival of the victims of this war. We encourage you to learn more about how to support this important work by visiting sunflowerofpeace.com. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good evening and welcome to this evening's program, Civil Dialogue in Partisan Times. A special welcome to the students and educators who are joining us today. My name is Alice Sue. I am the Associate Director for the Center for Deliberative Democracy at Stanford University and host of the podcast Voices of Shaping Our Future and Voices of America in One Room. It is my pleasure to be your moderator for today's special student-led event. This program is brought to you by Creating Citizens, an education initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California and is sponsored by the Corette Foundation. Today, I am joined by leaders at the forefront of a growing movement to depolarize politics and society. Oh, I'm sorry, politics and society. Unfortunately, Mia Charity, one of our panelists that was scheduled to be here today, will not be able to join us tonight following a travel emergency. So if the two of you would like to introduce yourself and your work first, that would be great. Let's start with Justine. Sure. Thanks for having me. I'm Justine. I'm calling from New York City, but I'm originally from the Bay Area, and I am the Executive Director of Living Room Conversations. And we are focused on working with leaders to bridge differences and build connections through small group conversations in their communities. I got started in the bridge building movement in 2016 uh, when I co-created Make America Dinner Again. Um, And like the name suggests, we were organizing dinners uh, among people across the political spectrum and across the country with the goal to uh, better understand each other. Uh, And I lead with the belief that in order to solve the world's biggest problems, we need to face each other. And that starts with a conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, it's a pleasure to be here uh, speaking to the Commonwealth Club. And it's 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 wonderful to share the digital stage uh, with, with Justine, whose work is so extraordinary. Um, yeah, so my name is John Wood Jr. I'm national ambassador for an organization called Braver Angels. Uh, Braver Angels is America's largest grassroots bipartisan organization dedicated to the work of political depolarization. I tend to like to deepen that explanation by saying that what we are really committed to is sort of reviving the communal spirit of American democracy, if you will. We work across multiple sectors of society, including politics and government, academia, media, uh, even arts and culture. We have a community of singers and songwriters uh, that uh, implement music in some of our programming. Uh, But we are grassroots in local communities. We've got about 10,000 members across the country, uh, getting close to about 80 local bipartisan alliances in different parts of America. We do a range of things from content production, live forums, and 
and programming. But the heart of our work comes in workshops and interventions that are crafted to teach people deeper skills for empathetic communication and teaches people to build relationships with each other across partisan lines. Uh, our core models are more or less literally the application of marriage counseling to the relationship between Republicans and Democrats. And so probably, uh, you know, a fitting approach for a country that sometimes feels like it's on the brink of divorce. Uh, but, you know, seeking to head that off is what we do. And um, yeah, and once again, I'm grateful to be here having this conversation with you. Thank you, Justine. Thank you, John. Um, one, one final note before we begin. If you have a question or comment for me or for any of the speakers today, please post it in the YouTube chat where you are watching. Okay, let's jump in here. We've got a lot of questions today. Um, I want to start with a broad one um, just to set our bearings. Uh, this one about our country. Are we, is our country really as polarized as it seems to be? Or does media bias make the situation seem worse than it really is? What do you guys think? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I think that to just jump right in, I, I, I think that it sort of depends on where you look and, and, and what you're looking at. On the one hand, most Americans, I think, are still very much capable of living together and working alongside each other because most of us are. Um, you know, most of us uh, have people whose politics differ from ours that we work with, go to school with, maybe even have in our families, in some cases, uh, people we're dating or even married to, right? Uh, and um, everybody does not hate everybody else, right? And so the media certainly has a vested interest in amplifying polarization and divisions. It's something that drives clicks, something that drives ratings. It's really sort of the business model of so much of modern politics. So it is possible to get the sense that things are worse than they are. Having said that, things are pretty bad, relatively speaking. And there are a lot of ways in which we can tell this. Now there's, you know, there's polling data that indicates, for instance, that you know, you go back a few generations, used to be the case that Americans were very concerned about their children marrying outside of their religious faith. If you were Protestant, you didn't want your daughter or son to marry Catholic and vice versa. But in those times, it used to be that only about 5 or 6% or so of people had any serious problem with their kids marrying uh, somebody from the other party. Now that's completely changed. A religious cross-marriage is not particularly controversial. But uh, marrying a Republican, if you're a Democrat and vice versa, you know, you're, the idea of your child doing that seems like a great betrayal uh, for many people. Um, the levels of affective polarization, that is to say, personal vitriolic contempt towards people on the other side of the aisle on the basis of their party affiliation, what we think that represents, is something that statistically speaking has been shown to have increased radically. Um, going all the way back from the 70s to the 80s, but definitely accelerating over the course of the last 26, uh, 28 years or so, since about the mid-1990s. And uh, we are at uh, a high point of that sort of a polarization now. Um, so, you know, there, there are all sorts of reasons for that, and maybe we'll get into discussing uh, some of it. But if you look at the breakdown of our ability to govern, the breakdown of Congress's ability to function, uh, pass legislation, et cetera, et cetera, you look at 
outbursts of political violence, and you look at the sorting of the American people. I mentioned a moment ago that most of us live next to people or by people who have different politics than our own. That's actually less true today than it was in the past. People are literally sorting themselves into counties that are more and more like themselves politically. It used to be the case that most Americans lived in counties that were within about 20% or so, you know, different Republican-Democrats, 60-40 split. Uh, nowadays, most Americans live in counties that are upwards of 70 or 80 percent, one side or the other. And that's because we're actively moving away from each other because of political reasons. So there's all sorts of metrics by which we can tell that this is a worsening problem. And that's what occasions the work that we do. Wow, John, you're, you're painting a pretty grim picture right now. Just seeing what do you think? I, I appreciate I didn't actually know that about the county, the county breakdowns um, from 64 to 80, 20. That's, that's interesting. I'm not surprised. Um, I can speak more um, from my experience working with media outlets, um, even the groups that are the media outlets and journalists that are interested in covering the bridge building space, uh, I find have, <laughs> have a an interest in really painting our work as a, what they're looking for is a very sharp contrast and a kind of hero's arc of you have two people that start out really hating each other. And by the time they've, they've, they've gone through a braver angels workshop or a living room conversation, they're now best friends and are inseparable. Mm-hmm. And I find that frustrating because that isn't always the case, you know, and um, that isn't even necessarily the objective. Uh, people don't need to start out hating each other um, for this work to be meaningful. And um, I think that um, just my experience with media is that, you know, they um, are invested in those types of storylines. And so I really appreciate I, I have worked with some. Uh, journalists and producers who understand that what we're trying to highlight is that there is a lot of complexity in one's identity and belief systems and how they show up in the world and what they represent and that it is not uh, just, um, you know, a binary. And I, I appreciate those, um, those opportunities to tell, tell a more accurate picture of our participants and the work that we hope to do. I mean, that frames it really well, Justine, and it um, raises a question kind of thinking uh, in terms of what do you think the goals of these deliberations that Living Room Common Race Station does, Braver Angels does, our own center does for with deliberative polling? What, what are, you know, the, what you described just seeing of that arc, you know, I've, I've seen it so many times, even in coverage of the work that we do. Um, what, what is that? What's the hope? You know, are we hoping that they do become friends? Are we hoping that they are able to sit next to each other? What, what should the expectation be for everyone that's watching and listening today? Can, you know, after a conversation, can we expect to like each other afterwards or just to tolerate each other? What are, what should, how should we calibrate these expectations? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm happy to jump in on that unless Justine, you want to take a swing at it. 
take us a little bit first here. Yeah. Well, you know, I think that there are, um, and now, first of all, to Justine's point, every interaction is different, right? And everybody who engages in a living room conversation or Brave Angels workshop isn't necessarily going to walk away best friends. Although, you know, this does happen. And certainly in Braver Angels, we can recount all sorts of inspiring stories. And those stories are deeply meaningful. But I think that there is benefit that comes to the individual and that there's benefit that comes to society. It's important to look at these things, I think, in both of those dimensions. Um, on the one hand, I do think that there's intrinsic value in coming to have a deeper understanding of the lived experience and the humanity of somebody who thinks differently than you do. Because otherwise, we're walking around all day with sort of distorted caricatures of who people are on the other side, who people that we interact in our personal lives with are, that have been developed, that have been developed in order to polarize us against each other for the sake of ratings or votes or what have you, uh, in a way that impacts our mental health in a terrible, terrible way. How are you not going to live in a great state of anxiety if you think that you're surrounded by Nazis and, and you know, <laughs> and, and Stalinists all day long, right? And, and yet that's the impression that, that you get uh, from a lot of the polarizing sort of, sort of narratives. So, you know, learning how to communicate with people empathetically is empowering. Learning how to see the humanity in people is balancing. You know, so there's a mental health benefit that comes to you and a relational benefit that comes to you. But what also grows out of these interactions are new norms, if you will, for how it is we engage with each other, new, new norms of disposition, new norms of understanding that then find themselves exported into the settings and institutions within which we actually participate in the project of self-governance. So if I know how to communicate with you more effectively because I understand you better as a human being, suddenly we are going to do a better job working together in a corporation. Suddenly we're going to do a better job learning from each other in the classroom. Suddenly we're going to do a better job deliberating with each other um, in, in a hall of government, right? Suddenly we're going to do a better job representing one another uh, in the field of journalism and how we tell stories. And we'll have a greater basis for trusting each other, even when the other one is in power and and, and, and I am not, let's say. And that relationship of trust and those norms of empathy and respect need to be there in order for democracy and her institutions to function. In the absence of that, you get what we're getting now, where vast majorities of the American people don't trust Congress, don't trust the White House, don't trust the academy, don't trust the legal system, don't trust the church in a significant uh, degree, you know, um, because we don't trust each other. So that's the benefit uh, at scale to society. I completely agree. <laughs> you said it awful. Um, um, I, I will say that living room conversations is a little less focused on um, building consensus, deliberation, um, debate. We are more focused on just participants showing up, learning and hearing from each other. Um, our questions and prompts draw out personal experiences and stories. Um, I think there are people who prefer the, um, prefer a debate deliberation. Um, and there are going to be folks who prefer to have, uh, to be in a space where they can share some of their stories. I mean, obviously, um, there can be a little of both in each setting, but, you know, uh, we actually did a study with Fetzer Institute in 2019. So this is pre COVID, 
Um, but we it was an extensive 18 month study that found that living room conversations, our model and our agreements um, and engaging in this practice regularly actually led to people um, increasing their listening skills and, and um, improving their listening skills. Improve, you know, they essentially don't have a lot of space um, or time to practice their listening skills because it's just something that um, we've we've kind of found a way to to do without or do less of. Um, and it also improved folks' mindset. So what John was saying, mental improvement in mental health, feeling of just like being more connected to your fellow um, citizen, neighbor, um, person, and um, also an increase in, um, in understanding different perspectives and uh, systemic issues. So I feel like I think those are some pretty good goals to work towards. Um, and, you know, people are going to show up to living room conversation and a braver angels workshop with different, you know, with different motivations. But I think that most people that I've encountered have showed up with an open mind and they've left with an even more open mind. So, yeah. Thank you. For I was just going to say, that's definitely been yes. my experience participating in the living room conversation model. And it does give you an opportunity to go deep on an issue while you're going deep with people of, who have different perspectives on that and different experiences with that issue. Right. And so, you know, there's sort of a concurrent deepening that takes place that produces a pretty powerful, a pretty powerful effect in an intimate sort of way. And so, you know, it's very, it's very illuminating. And I was just going to add to that um, the point that you know Justine brought up about practicing. Um, it, it's very you know interesting. A lot of the students here that are listening, and, and others too, were are long past being of student age, perhaps um, having conversations about um, you know on our college campuses, and a lot of people have talked about um, you know the only level of civics they got was in probably a class they had in high school, if that. And then, um, and then all of a sudden you turn 18 and you're expected to be this good citizen. And, you know, the only practice we had was, you know, some class that talked about maybe what it meant to go to the ballot box once every so often. And, and then, you know, there's all this discussion you know, about, oh, you should vote or you should do this or you should do that. But there's no time for us to practice. There's really no uh, room. There's no regular place for us to practice. But, you know, Netflix and YouTube is you know readily available for us to practice doing other things and catching up on our, you know, comedies and dramas. And it's it's one of those things that we haven't really normalized um, the practicing of what it means to be in a democracy and, and listening to other people. And, and so I, this, you know, this conversation we're having is really highlighting that, um, whichever method we're using, um, you know, we're giving people opportunity to join in at some point and have these conversations. And I think for, for all of our organizations and especially our center right now is trying to understand how do we make it so accessible that it's just at someone's fingertips if they wanted to join a conversation at that moment in time. 
And so we're thinking about how to scale conversations to tens of thousands, to millions of people at the same time. Um, and um, right now we're, we're um, been doing deliberations on a AI assisted um, deliberation platform where we can have thousands of people on the platform at the same time. And um, it's just, you know, it's so interesting to me being in the space where everyone talks about being a good citizen, but we have such limited resources to provide people to do so. Um, and, and just pushing the conversation forward even more and going deeper now, um, I, I'm wondering, you know, from both of your experiences, are there issues that are difficult to have, to be had with deliberation? One of them um, is, you know, a question I have here, is it possible to have non-polarized conversations about issues that in a way require polarization? The example we have here is about critical race theory or book banning, where people seemingly have to either support the good, the bad, or the ugly side of the issue, um, or if there are any other topics that you feel are right for de deliberation or, you know, should you know, deliberations to stay away from. What are your experiences telling you? Geez, hmm. well, I'm, I'm, I'm tempted to jump back to the civics piece because that's such an important part of this conversation. Maybe, maybe we can circle back to that a little bit because you made a lot of good points that are highly relevant, Alice. We, um, and I'll just, if you'll forgive me, let me, let me just say on that front very quickly that you're absolutely right. I mean, we don't, give um, great attention to what it means to actually be an active participant in a democracy. That's something we sort of just leave to people to figure out. I mean, I, I remember I was asked to review a study of state educational standards for civics uh, for the Fordham Institute at some point. And when I reviewed it, I realized, oh, there pretty much are no standards, or at least the standards that there are, are inconsistent and, you know, not don't require much depth of reflection. Uh, I have a friend who's uh, a bit of a tutor of mine, uh, Professor Harry Boyd from Augsburg University, who worked with uh, Martin Luther King Jr. as an aide to Dr. King in the 1960s. And a big part of what he talks about is how the civil rights movement was, and the nonviolent movement in particular, was rooted in this idea of citizenship. They had things called citizenship schools, where they read the founding documents and talked about the importance of free speech, what it meant to participate in a democracy. And they developed this inclusive spirit of democracy that allowed people to discuss issues in ways that were passionate, but also inviting of different sorts of perspectives to a vision that was meant to include everybody. Um, and uh, Harry Boyd, he talks a lot about the idea of citizen professionalism. Now, thinking of yourself as occupying an office as a citizen. And by the way, the, the, the term citizen, it should be it should be said, this is about something of a characterological disposition, not not foremost kind of legal status, so to speak, in, in this in this understanding. I mean, you know, we, we all are here as a part of the community that requires our being able to have the the civic muscle to respect each other while also speaking truth forth, forthrightly as we see it. So it's just a thought on that. Um, but to your question, are there certain things that we can't bring to these conversations as far as issues? I, I hope not. <laughs> yeah. I hope that that's not the case. I mean, I think that some uh, topics you can say may be more difficult than others. And um, I think that in particular issues that go directly to matters of morality uh, in a deep-seated kind of way and matters of identity uh, can be can be difficult can be can be tricky 
Um, but, you know, we need a far better conversation over race and education than what we're getting at present with these sort of, you know, back and forth over critical race theory. Is it nowhere or is it everywhere? <laughs> You know, how are we how are we caught between these two these two things? And you know, the truth is just kind of kind of nuanced. I mean, you know, critical race theory is something that is not really taught formally at the grade school level anywhere. On the other hand, you know, ideas inspired by critical race theory do inspire various educators who do find themselves in college school, college campuses, but even or in, in grade school campuses and so forth. But even even at that there's specific conversations over, you know, if we talk about the burning of Black Wall Street in Tulsa, Oklahoma, is that critical race theory or is that just a balanced view of history? But even if it's part of a balanced view of history, how are we teaching it? Are we teaching it in a way that informs or are we teaching it in a way that says that, you know, therefore, you know, Black kids and white kids in the classroom need to look at each other through through somewhat racialized eyes, so so to speak. You know, it requires an important conversation, but I think that what Living Room Conversations and Braver Angels and others bring to this is a willingness to sort of engage the human being behind the opinion in the context of, of, of his and her, uh, their experience, their history, right? Uh, so if we can humanize our differences, then we can give each other psychological permission to hear one another's point of view in a way that can be edifying instead of polarizing, right? And so, you know, that's always the answer, whatever the issue is. And if some issues are harder than others, that approach, I think, still remains the way to go. Justine? Yeah, I agree with John that there are some issues or topics that are harder than others. I know for myself personally, the issue of race is one that really depends on the time, the place, and who I'm in conversation with. Um, I think that directly after or soon after the uh, the Atlanta shootings uh, last year of six Asian women, I felt because of my work, um, because of my role at Living Room Conversations, I felt moved to uh, develop a conversation guide for Asian American Pacific Islander folks to um, talk about what it means to be Asian American during this time. Um, so I did that. But as I was thinking about actually having these conversations, um, I, I did feel I did feel some tentativeness. And I think that having having the conversation among Asian American women is, can be, has been especially powerful for me, powerful healing. It's much harder for me to have a conversation about my race with someone who is not Asian American, who is not an Asian American woman. Um, in particular with, with white men, I find it challenging. Um, and I think that's okay. And I think part of doing this work participating, engaging this work is figuring out what your capacity is to engage in these types of conversations, what topics um, you're capable of engaging on at length, and what what topics might put you on edge. And I have learned that over the past six years, you know, what, what my lines are, and just getting better at listening to myself, um, listening to my body, listening to how I how I respond to um, 
what I'm hearing on social media. If I, if I'm feeling my body tense up, then I probably can't engage with someone on that topic, um, at length. So, yeah. And I actually wanted to also comment, Alice, on your point earlier about making these spaces more accessible to more people. I think that's absolutely worth doing. Uh, I also recognize that this work is or can be considered a privilege. Uh, there are plenty of folks who don't have the time or the energy or the wherewithal to to like participate in conversations with different perspectives because they're just trying to get by. They're just trying to survive. They're, you know, learning, they're still learning about their community and how they fit into their community. And so I, I just want to take a moment to acknowledge that. And I, but I do think that as a leader in this space with you all, I want to be thinking about how we can make it more accessible, how we can expand the definition of an engaged active citizen, what that means, you know, beyond voting, beyond thinking about your political identity. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it can be a lot of things and, and yeah, something to think about. Justine, thank you for bringing that up. Um, you know, I'm reminded um, in November of last year, uh, the American Academy of Arts and Sciences hosted the Youth Democracy Summit. And um, a part of that, our, our center did this national deliberation among 18 and 29-year-olds. And um, during the discussion, when the results were presented, uh, one of the things that um, one of the proposals people were talking about um, was about what to do to encourage more people to participate in the civic space or civic education in general. And a number of you know, young people brought up the fact that this space is not valued um, monetarily. Like people that want to be a computer scientist, a programmer, work in tech companies, they're highly paid. They get paid the big bucks. But people who want to do public service or work in a civic space, they get very meager pay. And therefore, you know, jobs in this area have a different context and you do it out of goodwill or because you're a good person. Um, and, and a lot of people, you know, don't end up not going into this space because there's no money to be made. And there was so much discussion among these young people that, you know, if you want to improve democracy, if you want to improve civics, if you want to improve this space where you want people to be good citizens, then you should pay people to work in this space where they can make a decent living and, and be the people who you, we want them to be. And, and I wonder, you know, from, you know, each of your organizations, like, how do you cope with that? How do you, I'm sure you struggle with that. And our center struggles with that. You know, we're always constantly fundraising. We're constantly looking for money to do these projects. And even though now, you know, the term depolarization or moderation, or, you know, those terms are becoming more um, mainstream, it's not like money is coming in as quickly. Um, and so, you know, I was really struck by when, Young, these students, these young people that were at the conference started saying, well, if you want people working in this space and improving democracy in this way, as we're talking about it, we have to pay people the way that we pay programmers, pay them the salaries to make good people work in this space. And I wonder how the two of you deal with that and getting good talent. 
Yeah. Well, look, I, I sympathize. I mean, you know, I um have been working at Braver Angels, um, was originally Better Angels uh, for, I guess, four years now, almost exactly. I started as a member of staff, at least um, in March of 2018, although I volunteered for some months before that. Um, you know, I, I once uh, was a nominee for, for Congress. I once was a vice chairman of the L.A. County Republican Party. I was a liberal activist uh, in years before that. I worked for Obama's campaign in 2008. Um, and I made like zero to no money doing any of that. <laughs> you know, I just, you know, I was just, I've always been somebody who's motivated by a great deal of idealism and a desire to be, you know, sort of a, a constructive part of of democracy and and I just have have long been moved by that as a meaningful way to apply the energy of my life but it was a struggle especially you know, I got married had little kids and whatnot the wife is telling you at some point you need to get yourself a regular nine to five and stop you know <laughs> stop juggling dreams and whatnot and uh, you know now I'm very grateful to be you know relatively sort of you know, uh, comfortable in terms of my employment. But even then, to your point, I've spent a hell of a lot of my time fundraising. Justine, you take away the Fetzer Institute and like, you know, a fair amount of the movement disappears. I think. <laughs> you know? um, so, yeah. So, you know, thanks to those folks. So, you know, yeah, I mean, it's tough because it's not we live in a market driven um, economy and, and the things that are truly valuable do not always express their value in the price or compensation attached to them. I do think that civics education, just to the earlier point, is something that should be built into our general education. I don't think it should be just for people who want to go directly into public service or sort of specialize in, in fields directly related to that. But I also think and am actively advocating, and Justine, I'm sure you are too, for the philanthropic sector to become more deeply invested in this space, even than it already is, expanding the ring of, you know, of um, uh, foundations that are interested in this work, but also seeking to get the corporate sector interested in this in this space um, as well. So, you know, um, yeah, there does need to be many more resources applied to this work, uh, broadly speaking. And, you know, I think the good news is that that's changing slowly but surely. Um, the problem is that people get most invested when we're on the verge of some great crisis or emergency. Really, we need to be investing earlier on to build up the capacity to be able to to be able to hold American relationships together before we get to the points of, you know, worsening crisis. Yeah. I agree with everything John said. That's been our experience at Living Room Conversations, too. Um, I've been lucky that I did work in, you know, sort of more corporate settings earlier on in my career. I was able to save some money. I did start a retirement fund. I am also lucky that my parents um, set aside some money for me to put into savings and put in, make investments in um, so that I do have a bit of a safety net uh, so that I can uh, live on a nonprofit salary in New York City. Um, but it's still, you know, it's still a struggle. I, um, I, I think that the philanthropic sector and the, the business corporate sector is beginning to understand, um, the value of this kind of work, 
Living Room Conversations over the past couple years has begun working more with uh, corporations and businesses in bringing our model into their workplaces. Um, so there is an interest and they do have bigger budgets uh, than, than most other, you know, nonprofits or groups that are faith groups, civic groups that we typically worked with. So that's been cool to see. Um, and there um, is also a new group called, in terms of the philanthropic sector, there's a new group called the New Pluralists. Not sure if you've heard of it. I see John nodding. Oh, yeah. um, you know, you know about them, yeah. So mm-hmm. they're uh, they're. Yeah, I'm with, I'm with their uh, field builder network. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, they're a collective of foundations that are invested in uh, this work and imagining a new a new way forward. And um, they've begun making some um, making some contributions and really investing in the space. And they're really thinking about the long term infrastructure. Um, for this kind of work. So that's exciting to see, but like John said, it's, it's slow. And, um, and this is, and and this is just where we are right now. Yeah. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to take that, um, the slowness and transition over and, and, you know, John, you talked about bringing civics, you know, really having civics in schools and being that this is a student led program um, I'm sure many of the students now are thinking about whether they have civics in schools or whether they're going to have that class at some point or if they've had it already. Um, what can students do? You know, we're, this program is about, you know, living in partisan times and trying to navigate partisan times during these partisan times. What can students do in particular for those students that are listening? How can they help? whether it is depolarizing in their own daily life, um, whether it is preparing for something for the future that they may face, as we're talking about now, that, you know, this isn't just here and now, we have to look forward as well. What can students do in their capacity right now? Yeah, absolutely. Well, so... Obviously, organizations and on-campus institutions like yourselves um, make all the difference in the world in terms of providing a space for students to be able to plug in. And uh, there are others that are worthy of attention, too. Uh, Braver Angels is privileged to work with an incredible campus organization. I don't know if they're represented uh, in the Bay or not, but uh, but Bridge USA, Justine, you're probably familiar with Manu Mills. Manu Meals organization, an incredible campus group fostering dialogue and collaboration uh, across party lines, uh, across, uh, I think, some 55 some odd campuses uh, in in the country. Um, You know, there are organizations that give you the opportunity to become civically engaged in a way that is, you know, may involve activism, but also gives you the opportunity to build relationships and understanding with people who differ with you. And I think that a lot of what students have the opportunity to do does come down to when you get beyond uh, opportunities like that. And of course, Braver Angels is very much, like I said, a volunteer driven organization and we welcome student involvement 100 million percent. Right. Um, But I do think that taking advantage of the information that is available to us online uh, and in so many different uh, in so many different places therein, to be able to develop a deeper familiarity with how other people think beyond what is served up to us, you know, through the sort of 
polarized or partisan outlets that have a business model that's based on narrowing our point of view, right? Taking the opportunity to sort of understand if you have, if you can find the dime for it, you know, the intellectual and philosophical roots of conservatism, of progressivism, of the African-American experience, of the Appalachian experience and so forth, of the immigrant experience, whether you're talking about Asians or Latin Americans, et cetera, et cetera. Um, finding the time to be able to understand something of where it is people are coming from, why it is they think the way that they do, so that when you encounter individuals from the trans community, let's say the LGBTQ community, uh, who have a different life and perspective and experience than yourself, you are ready to have a conversation with them that is better positioned to dignify uh, the humanity of their experience, right? Um, that, to me, is at the heart of being a good citizen, right? Um, and um, recognizing that that really is rooted in just a basic sense of goodwill towards towards humanity. You know, for me, that's kind of where everything really starts. Meaning well for other people and not allowing people to be reduced to mere political abstractions. Because in reality, human beings are far more complicated than the ways that they vote. And holding on to that understanding is what anchors so many of us in a faith in the power of this work. Uh, but that lesson is available to you, whether you do this professionally or just trying to be a good, a good citizen, so to speak, in your own daily life. Totally. Thank you. And I, I wanted, uh, I want to take a moment to plug that Living in Conversations actually has a youth council. Uh, we're a group of about, I think it's like ten. Uh, high school, college-aged, and college-aged students across the country who um, are bringing and organizing living room conversations on their campuses on topics that they care most about. Um, we're all about creating spaces where students can feel seen and heard, and we believe that that is one of the first steps, like John suggests, in decreasing polarization. Um, yeah, I think that it's about a, a curiosity and a desire to hear and learn about other people, but also through that learning about yourself. Um, I think that, you know, asking yourself, asking yourself questions. So any, any question that you, you know, I often find myself when I read an article about a perspective I don't agree with, I'm like, how can they think this way, right? Like, I have all these questions that I'm kind of going through in my mind that I'd want to ask them if I could. But I think another valuable exercise could be asking myself, could I answer that question if they if they asked me? Could I imagine what they might be curious to learn about me? Have I thought through that? Um, I think just taking time to better understand yourself and what shapes your views, um, are you, do you feel secure and, and, and confident in your views? Are you still learning? Are you still um, wanting to figure that out? Yeah, just doing a little bit of that self, self-learning self interrogation reflection, I think, is, is, is critical, too. And so hard, Justine. <laughs> it's, it's so hard to do to be critical of ourselves. Um, uh, to to think about it things that way um and i i do want i know mia's not here with us um 
and I, but I do want to plug for her Close Up Foundation. They do a lot of work with middle school and high school students. Um, and selfishly, when our center's collaborating with Close Up this summer to do um, a couple um, summer programs for high school students, one specifically on deliberation. So for those that are interested, um, please check that out. Um, and and I, I want to... Um, kind of wrap up our discussion here because we're going to go into our live audience questions soon. Um, in the last uh, couple minutes, just for John um, and Justine to talk a little bit about next week, which is National Week of Conversation. And I wonder if there are opportunities that you'd like to share um, for us to all engage um, in or and if there's anything specifically for students. Yeah, sure. So the National Week of Conversation is um, the bridging movement's big week in the year. Uh, we're just especially active. So all the organizations kind of get together and and um, think of um, think of events and conversations that they want to put forth. Um, and what kicks it off this year and also last year was something called America Talks. And that is, uh, there are, it's, there are two days you can choose from, or you can attend both, but it's going to be essentially the same program on both days. Um, one's coming up this Thursday, April 21st. And then the second day is sun Saturday, April 23rd. And folks can sign up to basically be paired one-on-one or be put into a small group conversation uh, with different political perspectives based on how you answered a set of questions. And uh, the the conversation is um, the space is meant to be um, time for you to build understanding, spark some curiosity, um, hear from someone with a different perspective. And that's happening this Thursday or um, Saturday. So I think um, we can also drop a link in the chat if that's helpful. I think that's for anyone ages 18 and older. Uh, that's my understanding. And then LRC, Living Room Conversations, has a special event for folks ages 16 to 25. So I believe that's typically junior in high school to a little bit after um, undergrad. Um, for folks who want to talk about mental health um, and their relationship to mental health, um, that's been top of mind for our youth council leaders and members. It's come up a bunch when we've had our meeting, our monthly meetings, um, and uh, we want to give folks a space to really um, dig into that. Um, so it's a conversation hosted by our youth council uh, for youth, and that's happening next Tuesday. So a week from now, next Tuesday at, I believe, 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern. And we can also drop a link to register for that. That's fantastic. Yeah. And um, what I'll add is that Braver Angels at the at the end of next week. So I'm going to I'm going to sort of let the cat out of cat out, out of the bag here uh, for you all just a little bit early. Uh, but we're launching an initiative that stands to be our most sort of ambitious um, campaign yet. It's called Braver Politics. And what we're doing is seeking to seed Braver Angels workshops uh, in state and local governments across America and to mobilize our volunteers and to recruit 
a wide number of new members and volunteers to be able to go directly to their elected officials with the support of our network and our organization, working with national partners, uh, to be able to get Republicans and Democrats and others to engage in conversations with their constituents and with each other that aim at strengthening understanding and relationship building and depolarizing our politics, bucking the the sort of trend of, of divisiveness that animates so much of the way politicians behave, and to bring recognition to those politicians who are willing to commit to that work, right? And so if you're interested in being a part of this initiative to sort of directly engage our elected officials at every level of government, uh, I'd ask folks to go check out braverangels.org and subscribe to our mailing list um, because you will see You'll see more on that uh, very shortly. And as a matter of fact, that should be get, getting going towards the end of the uh, National Week of, of Conversation. And so happy to include a link to that uh, as well. Thank you both for that. Uh, we'll now take some audience questions. Uh, so feel free to send them in the chat. We've got a, quite a number already. So I'm going to start. Um, we have one here. Have you had success inviting people with more extreme views into your efforts? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Look, I think that, um, you know, sometimes people will ask about selection bias. And there is a selection bias in, in this work. And by that, I mean that, you know, there's certainly, certainly the case that you, you've got many folks who see the problem with polarization and want to get involved. And therefore, you might assume, well, maybe you weren't as such a big part of the problem to begin with if you wanted to actually, you know, uh, act against it. Now, the, the truth is, is that we've all got a little bit of a split personality, I think, where we feel polarized and we may say and think things about the other side, whatever that is, while also recognizing the fact that it doesn't feel good to be this way and it doesn't actually seem to be all that good for the world, right? Um, but you know, there are various ways in which people who don't see themselves as part of the problem, don't see themselves as necessarily needing to change, still wind up finding their way to us. One common thing that happens is you'll have, you know, you'll have maybe a wife who comes to a workshop and then says to her husband, like, you need this, you're you're coming with me. Or, you know, two people who are friends or neighbors or colleagues or what have you, you know, one person realizes that this is something that the other person should really experience and they kind of drag them along. Of course, you know, we uh, create content, uh, Braver Angels podcast, which I'm a co-host of, and, you know, we've got written and video material that circulates online that's meant to pique people's interest and bring them into the mission of Braver Angels. And that oftentimes finds itself having some appeal to people who, you know, didn't necessarily think to come to a workshop, but sort of, sort of find themselves taken with the idea that there's a better way to organize in a democracy. So that's part of it. And then one thing we do, of course, is we have a very popular debates program uh, in local communities and college campuses. And we execute this program with the uh, Bridge USA uh, chapters and campuses across the country. And, you know, that's really about having the opportunity to voice your position on an issue. But the way the debate is designed is it's about uplifting intellectual humility. It's about bringing people into sort of a communal pursuit of truth, if you will. People are even allowed to change their minds and are asked to, to, to be honest about where they have doubts on issues. But it still has an appeal to activists, to folks who are very partisan in their nature because it's a chance to be heard. But once you come into the space, you realize, okay, I get a chance to make my argument. 
But the way this thing is designed, I really have to be honest about kind of, you know, my own human experience with the issue. And I've got to be willing to listen to somebody else speak in a similar way. So you can see me moderating podcasts with leaders of Black Lives Matter, you know, nationally known uh, conservative uh, politicians and, and activists uh, and a wide range of people. And Justine, I think you and I, <laughs> maybe you're going to mention this, but didn't you and I do a living room conversation once with Marion Williamson and Rover Norquist, I think? Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah, exactly. So, you know, yeah, we, we wind up casting the net quite a bit wider than I think some people realize. I would agree with that. I think it depends on what you mean by extreme, extreme views. Uh, typically, with uh, Make America Dinner Again, when we organized dinners across partisan lines, we we were we did curate quite a bit to make sure to ensure the balance. There were a few folks who wanted to join with more extreme views, uh, who we decided not to invite or not to yeah not to invite because uh, their views were uh, could make other people feel unsafe. And that's just, that's just where we would draw the line. And that, and I can go into more detail, but I think you probably have a sense for what I mean about folks not feeling safe. It's essentially folks who were part of um, white power nationalist groups um, who I think very clearly uh, based on how they filled out um, form of interest were were there to um, were there to push an agenda, um, and and that wasn't quite that wasn't what we're about. So, yeah, um, I we're quickly running out of time. <laughs> we're in the last few minutes, so I'm going to try to squeeze as many questions in as we can. So perhaps keeping your next answers a little shorter. Um, so let's go with this. Let's try to get in a couple. The first one here. There are people in groups that benefit from keeping people opposed to each other. How can we discern who is trying to keep us polarized? Hmm. Well, you know, I think that, I think that, first of all, I think that that's true, but I think that that's also a consequence of the incentive structures that people find themselves in. And, you know, there's a straightforward political and financial incentive to dividing Americans if you're in, a, you know, if you're in much of the media or much of the partisan sort of, you know, political structures. But then there's also social incentives, too. You build your own social media following by dunking on people, you know, all day long. But even these people are human beings and, you know, we tend to get radicalized against each other. So, you know, you've got the You've, you've got sort of the stick there, and then you've got the carrot of saying, oh, if I build on this contempt that I'm feeling, I can actually benefit from it, you know. Um, take a look at people's incentives, and you'll have a sense as to what pressures are acting upon them. But at the same time, don't let that make you think that they're irredeemable. Um, we all uh, fall victim in various ways to the realities of the systems that we live in. We've got to sort of help liberate ourselves from, you know, from these bad incentives and, and reform some of these systems or change them, you know, in ways that don't call to the worst of human nature. But follow the incentives and that'll tend to give you some clarity. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Awesome. All right. Um, some practical help here. Can you give examples of some of the norms you ask people to observe during conversations? Justine, let's start with you. 
Sure. I actually have um, a card here that has living room conversations, conversation agreements on it. So I can just read them aloud very briefly. Um, be curious and listen to understand. Show respect and suspend judgment. Note any common ground as well as any differences. Be authentic and welcome that from others. Be pers purposeful and to the point. Own and guide the conversation. Yeah, and the one that I um, I tend to emphasize is, um, or that one that's most challenging for me is is often suspending judgment. So I encourage uh, participants if they are hearing something that is triggering a judgment uh, to have a note card or a piece of paper handy to jot down some notes and to be prepared to, uh, to you know, to let the person complete their thought and uh, so not interrupt and then um, just be ready to ask a question. But also um, I, I find what can uh, lessen the heat in a situation is if you um, force yourself to actually say back what you are hearing from someone, um, it forces you to take a step back and actually process what you're hearing and then articulate it. And it also gives, and once you do that, it gives the other person a chance to either uh, correct, um, amend, or say, yep, that's, that's what, that's exactly right. Um, and so I, I feel like that pause and that exercise of articulating what you're hearing from someone go a long way. Yeah, indeed. Uh, here's one. Listening to people in a way that allows you to articulate their perspective, their point of view, in terms that would resonate with the way they themselves think about it, right? So if somebody disagrees with you on immigration, you could do what we often do, which is to characterize their point of view or make an assumption and say, okay, so, you know, you're, you're, you want to, you know, build the wall because you hate brown people and so forth, or, you know, you support Colin Kaepernick because you hate America, uh, or, you know, you can listen to them because in general, that's not necessarily the inner monologue that's taking place in the person with a different political point of view. In general, if you listen to them, you're likely to hear something along the lines of, you know, I care deeply about the rule of law or I care deeply about social justice. And so if you can articulate back to them, okay, you support this policy because you think that the rule of law matters and that that's what allows us to survive as a country, or you agree with this demonstration because you see that or you believe that people of color are targeted by law enforcement and that that needs to change and we need to draw attention to it and that this is one of the best ways to do it. You may not agree with that position, but you can show the person that you've actually done them the respect of actually genuinely hearing what they're really saying, right? And in so doing, you sort of purchase the opportunity for them to then listen to you earnestly in return. Thank you for that. All right. Um, the last audience question, this may seem like an easy one, but I think there's a deeper question here, but I'm only going to give you 30 seconds each. So can you talk about why it's important 
to have face-to-face conversations. When you say face-to-face, does that does that include Zoom? It doesn't. It didn't clarify, but I'm going to assume yes. I'm going to assume it includes, you know, we've been in a pandemic for two years. So I'm going to assume these Zoom things are also considered face-to-face. Why is it important? Mm-hmm. Yep. Why is it important? Well, I can jump in and offer a perspective. And I, I, I don't know. The per- person may have meant, you know, physically face-to-face because there is a conversation over whether or not, you know, you can totally, totally uh, replicate it. Uh, but I think that being able to see somebody, the human face carries so much information, so much nuance, you know, there's all sorts of things that you can read over a text message, at least in my case, that like, I'll get sort of annoyed, you know, that if the person were actually there in front of me saying it, and I could see, you know, I could hear the tone of their voice, I could look at their facial expression, I'd interpret it a different way, you know. There's a deepening of our understanding of the human context of what's communicated when you actually have the human being in front of you. And Zoom is is a million times better than nothing, but I do think in-person conversations have a way of deepening that felt humanity uh, in, in a way that I don't think is um, something we want to just dispense with. If you know, To the extent to which we can have those conversations up close, I'd like to. Yeah, I agree. Uh, for For in-person, I think... The advantage is that, yeah, you get the fuller range of being able to read folks' body language, their face. You also have a shared a shared space and experience. So uh, if you're sharing a meal or you're in a beautiful park or you're someplace where you can basically comment and enjoy the present moment in a very human, you know, visceral way, uh, that can also go a long way in just people feeling more connected and, 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 um, giving each other the benefit of the doubt, humanizing each other. Um, I think these, I've, yeah, I think with zoom video chat, it's, um, yeah, like John said, it's, it's better, it's better than nothing. It's better than just relying on text. Um, but I think even voice is, is very powerful. Yeah. I completely agree with that. And even in the projects that we've done on our online platform, we hear people talking about, I feel the group building empathy. I feel the closeness and the connection despite just being online and seeing it um, on video. All right. Now we've got our very last question. Uh, We've gotten to the point uh, where we have going to have to close up after this question. Uh, Here's your final one. What is your number one quick tip for having hard conversations and keeping discourse civil? <laughs> well, take stock of where you are. Every opportunity to have a conversation uh, across divides is not necessarily one that you should feel obligated to take, right? So, you know, it's, it's, it's important to make that, make that statement. Um, but, yeah, I, I said it earlier. I, I think that for me, you know, when all else fails, Mastering the sort of inner dialogue of charity towards the other person, you know, having a spirit of goodwill towards them, being able to show them that you do not mean them harm, even if you viscerally disagree. That was the core teaching of of nonviolence, of philosophical nonviolence. It wasn't just about avoiding physical, you know, violence. It was about avoiding 
internal violence of, of the spirit and freeing ourselves from contempt uh, and, and, and hatred of, of others. If you can learn to see somebody's humanity and just remind yourself that that's a human being beneath, human being beneath the ignorance, that attitude tends to shine through in your body language, in your tone of voice. And even if the clever tactics uh, and formulations fail, you know, that's the last line of defense that you want to lean upon. All right, just see. <laughs> I, I love both, both of uh, the tips that John, John provided. Um, I agree with the first, knowing yourself. Know what you have, have the capacity to talk about at length. I had mentioned this earlier. Um, I know that I can talk to people about why they trust, what institutions they trust and why. Uh, if, I, if I find that someone disagrees with me on that, I can usually find a way to, to get through that conversation. But I have a much harder time talking to people who starkly disagree with me on race and racism. That's just where I'm at right now. Uh, another tip I'd give is to have a cup or glass of water close by. If you need to take a pause, you actually have something. <laughs> you have a physical thing that allow that gives you the space to do that. Um, and just remember to breathe and um, and just listen to your to yourself. Yeah. Thank you both. I want to throw mine out there. I'm just going to say more broadly: um, if we want to survive in our democracy, in any democracy, listening to each other is really not an option. So, if not for yourself. For the greater good, um, really, you know, we don't have an option. We, we have to we have to survive and listen to each other. Well, thank you so much, Justine Lee, John Wood Jr., for sharing your stories and for the vitality, um, for the no vital error there for the vital work that you do in addressing harmful polarization in our society. The Commonwealth Club will soon be posting the video of today's conversation on their website to watch the video and to support the Commonwealth Club and their education initiative, Creating Citizens. Please visit www.commonwealthclub.org oh, slash education. I am Alice Yu. Thank you so much for joining us online today at the Commonwealth Club and good night. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.